Good warm evening to everybody. Let's start with our motivation. And just thinking how it is that we've been trying to be happy since the beginning of this time. That is a long, long time to try something and not be very successful at it. And even we can't remember beginning this time, we can look back in this life from our very earliest memories and really see that this wanting to be happy, wanting to be happy, wanting to be happy is motivated everything we do. It's a great, really tragedy of psychic existence that we're so obscured by um, our afflictions, our karma, that we can barely recognize that what we're doing isn't working. And we look around and we see that that's true of all the people around us. Think about the animals in the animal realm, eating one another alive, simply trying to be happy. The other realms, hungry ghost realms, so much craving, so much suffering in the hell realms, so much pleasure in the God realms. And yet none of it brings anything that lasts, anything that lasts. And so for just on the basis of our own past positive actions too, the conditions have come together for us to really learn about the bodhisattva grounds, the ways that these just amazing Arya beings whose only goal is to get enlightened as quickly as they can so they can get all of us out of this suffering of psychic existence, those beings. We have a chance to hear the teachings on exactly how they do it and to have a deeper understanding of the step-by-step process by which we remove these very afflictions, obscurations that make it so hard for us to see what true happiness is. And so with, with a great wish to see ourselves and everyone around us and every being through every realm who's been working so hard for so long to finally achieve success. Looking to the bodhisattvas that we admire and aspire to become like. We can engage in this exchange with this quiz, deepening our understanding, deepening our appreciation. getting more clear and more precise about the goals that we're setting for ourselves to be able to achieve the ten grounds of the bodhisattvas, to pass into complete Buddhahood, and to be able to lift the obstructions to, um, the, the afflictive obscurations and the obstructions to admissions of every living being, and use that as our goal. So let's think about our potential to do that really expand our belief that it might be possible and set that as our motivation. So, I've actually had a lot of fun preparing for this. Um, 
I had a little last-minute freak-out this afternoon when I realized that I was actually not understanding something I thought I really understood. <laughs> but I think I have that sorted out, and I'm trusting that everyone here will help me with that. Um, hmm, that's not what I meant to have. Well, that's what I meant to have. Okay. So, um, we are on quiz three, grounds and paths, salam. Stages and paths, according to Alex Burson. I used a few sources, which might have been added to my confusion, I'm afraid. I listened to Venerable Children's teachings, uh, went through my own notes. I also consulted um, Alex Burson's website. I consulted uh, Jeffrey Hopkins' Meditation on Emptiness. And with Venerable Tarpa's guidance, I also consulted um, Cutting Through Appearances by uh, Geshe Lendup Sopa, uh, translated by Jeffrey Hopkins. Yeah. So there are a few sources, and you know, all the sources came back to the same thing. What Venerable taught us was actually very clear, <laughs> very clear and very thorough. I didn't need to go to all those other sources, but it was um, it was useful and interesting. So our, our um, assignment tonight is to go through the second set of four questions. That would be question five, six, seven, and eight. And buried within question seven are innumerable questions. So it's actually a whole bunch of questions here. Um, I am trusting, oh, I have no pen. Okay, I'm trusting that there will be, I think I may not need it, that there will be lots of help from this group. Because um, I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I'm sure between us we probably do. So um, one of the quotes that I got from um, Meditation on Emptiness that I wanted to bring back to the group, I found um, a good reminder. He was defining what is a path of meditation. And he says, a path of meditation is a continuous familiarizing with the emptiness that was initially and directly cognized on the path of seeing. In meditative equipoise, a bodhisattva, or a hearer or solitary realizer, again and again enters into direct realization of emptiness and in subsequent attainment practices the deeds appropriate to his or her motivation. So, what he's reminding us is that a path of meditation is once on the path of seeing, which we talked about last week, we've directly realized emptiness. Now, on the path of meditation, we are entering a meditative equipoise again and again and again and again and again with the same object. That, obje- that, medi- that um, emptiness that we have perceived directly. But as we accumulate merit along this very long path of meditation, as we um, deepen our understanding of wisdom, I mean our emptiness, as our wisdom grows and deepens and becomes richer, that wisdom mind, that same mind, actually is able to eliminate greater and greater levels of the afflictions in our minds. And so that's what this path of meditation that we're spending most of our time tonight in is all about. Yeah? Yes. Okay. How are uninterrupted paths and liberated paths similar? How are they different? How are they similar and different with meditative equipoises that are neither? So first, what is an uninterrupted path? What is a liberated path? I think we talked about this last week. What is an uninterrupted path? Can I get something? Yes. It is a meditative equipoise on emptiness. Which one? An uninterrupted path. Is a medi- they both are okay. But an uninterrupted path is a meditative equipoise on emptiness that is in the process of eliminating a certain set of afflictions. That is in the process of eliminating a certain set of afflictions. Agree? Mm-hmm. Okay. What is a liberated path? Yes? So that is the meditative equipoise on emptiness that has successfully eliminated a certain set of afflictions. Agreed? Okay. How are they similar? The object that they are focusing on, emptiness, is the same. The afflictions that they are abandoning, that are being abandoned, are the same. So the object that that exalted wisdom is focusing on is uh-huh. the same. 
So the exalt the object of the exalted wisdoms of both of the, the objects of both of these two minds is the same, emptiness. And the the objects that these two well that's how they're similar. Yeah, so that they're they're both uh, engaged with the same set of afflictions. Okay. Anything else? I mean, I didn't find this in notes, but they do both occur in the same meditation session. <laughs> right. So I think that's quite similar. Okay. So how are they different? Yeah. The liberated path doesn't. Yes. So, as we said just when we talked about the definition, the uninterrupted path is in the process of eliminating or abandoning the level of affliction. The liberated path has abandoned them. And so the uninterrupted path, actually, as I sorted through the chart that I made here, the uninterrupted path then takes us in a single session from one level, one bumi, into the next. The liberated path is, takes us into the next. So we start out on, say, the first bumi. We get this idea that, I mean, we under, the, the bodhisattva understands that the um, affliction, that the strength of their emptiness might be ready to move into the next level. They sit down, they engage in their meditative equipoise on emptiness, the strength of their um, wisdom starts to overcome the um, acquired afflictions, that's the uh, uninterrupted path, and then as they continue their meditation, the, uh, all those particular afflictions, those acquired afflictions are eliminated from their mind completely, that's the um, liberated path. They get up, and now they're on the second booming. I don't know if they get gold stars or have a party or what, but but it is a significant moment each time it happens. That can happen in one lifetime. Well, actually, you're on the first two... Does anybody have this written down? You're on the first two boomies for one countless gradient. You're on the second through the seventh for another countless gradient, and you're on the eighth through the tenth for a countless gradient. That's what I think. But the lifetime in which it happens, yes, it happens in one lifetime. <laughs> Somewhere in those years. Right? Does that make sense? So, um, what are meditative equipoises that are neither? Right, so you're still meditating on emptiness, but you're not in the process of, nor have you in that session abandoned any other set of afflictions. Right? Yes, the objects of abandonment. You haven't addressed them. I think that's subsequent attainment. Yeah, this is a meditative equipoise. Yeah, that is neither. I think this is. This, I think the object is emptiness in this one. This is kind of a trick question because uninterrupted and liberated paths don't occur in a session that is neither. Because. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You're just practicing. Very smart, Venerable Sumpton. Uninterrupted paths and liberated paths cannot occur no. in one in a session of a meditative equipoise that is neither. <laughs> but you might start a meditative session that is neither. The strength may build. You may, in that meditative session, enter the, the uninterrupted path that leads right to the liberated path. So so there you have that. Huh. It sounds like in that one that's neither, at least when you come out of it, you're kind of getting more certainty that you're getting closer and then someday you're going to have that session. Yeah. I have a couple of notes here. The majority of meditations are neither. 
this is a quote from Venerable, all times when meditating on emptiness between the liberated path of one ground and the uninterrupted path into the next are meditative equipoise on emptiness that are neither. So eons can pass between the liberated path of one ground and the uninterrupted path of the next ground. So most, mostly bodhisattvas are meditating on emptiness and it is a meditative equipoise that is neither. Clear? Clear enough? Okay. Oh, I copied charts here, everybody, and then I left them in the copy machine. Yeah, or somebody who does not in front of the camera. Yeah, run down. I think this will help. Yeah, in the tray. So, question number six. How many uninterrupted paths and liberated paths are on the Mahayana path of meditation, and what do they abandon? Some people say two, some people... Okay. Well, you start off as two, but then we get further divided. How many uninterrupted paths and liberated paths are on the Mahayana path of meditation? And what do they abandon? What comprises the Mahayana path of meditation? Let's start with that one. Second to the tenth boonies. Agreed? Right. Okay. So between the second to the tenth boomies, or, yeah, how many uninterrupted paths and liberated paths are there? There's two uninterrupted for each boomie. Two uninterrupted for each boomie. Do I hear another answer? I counted on this chart and it looked like 12. This chart that we just got. I hope not, but it may be there. Maybe 11? Maybe 11. Who thinks 11? Going once, going twice. 11. There are 11 uninterrupted paths and 10 liberated paths. Now why is that? So when you have so so I think what I think you're saying is that the last uninterrupted path leads to Buddhahood, not another liberated path. Right. Okay. So there's eleven uninterrupted paths, ten liberated paths. And what do they abandon? That's where I got the chart. Let me say also that I did not do this all by myself. I got the bones of this chart from Alex Berzin's website, but it didn't quite match what our question was, so I supplemented a little bit. Can we go over how to find Yeah, we're going to do it as we go through the chart. First of all, I have to say, it's in our text verbatim. On page 17 or 19... You have it. Uh huh. Yeah. So on page seventeen, it says verbatim there are eleven uninterrupted paths. Yes, there are seven. There are seven that abandon the afflictive obstructions, and then there are the four that abandon the obstructions to omission. The co- also called cognitive obscurations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, now here's the tricky part. And this is the part that I could use everybody's help on. Uh, when you're on a liberated path, for example, the second boomy, the stainless, 
the liberated path start that bumi or does the uninterrupted path before it start the bumi? Um, you see what I mean? So we have the uninterrupted path of the first bumi. No. At the end of the first bumi, we sit in meditation. We, our wisdom gains strengths. We enter the uninterrupted path. which becomes the liberated path which takes which takes us into the second bumi right so do you count it from the uninterrupted path or do you count it from the liberated path you see my question mm-hmm. yeah my chart doesn't count it though you when I think about it <laughs> <laughs> right it tells you what you've what you've heard what you've gotten rid of okay well I, I followed the way the chart went and so it does, there are 11 there are 11 so it, so the path of meditation begins with the second bumi right the liberated path at which the first nine innate afflictions the big of the big are abandoned yeah the afflictive obscurations we enter an uninterrupted path that leads to the liberated path of the third bumi where the second set of nine afflictive obscurations are eliminated, the middling of the big. Hey, sweetheart. Eventually, we enter the uninterrupted path that turns into the liberated path of the fourth bumi where we eliminate the Three, the third of the nine innate afflictive obscurations, the small of the big. Yes. Can I ask a question on your chart? Yeah. Is this how they worded this? The first of the nine? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they worded it exactly. Now on the chart on page 43, it says that the small of the big afflictive obscurations are abandoned on the fourth one. Yeah, so that's that's part of the question. So the uninterrupted path of the fourth ground, for example, would start to would be beginning to eliminate the nine innate afflictive obscurations, the bigger the middling. Right on the fifth, the liberated path completely eliminates those. So I think there is just some question about where you draw the line, mm-hmm. right? So if we stick with the chart as I got it from from Burson and also from Hopkins, this matches the Hopkins chart too. The uninterrupted path from the fifth goes into the sixth, at which point we eliminate the fifth of the nine afflictive obscurations, the middling of the middling. <laughs> so a little typo on the seventh boomy. We enter the uninterrupted path on the sixth that goes to the liberated path where we are eliminating the sixth of the nine afflictive obscurations, the small of the middling. They have been. It's not that we are abandoned, because the liberated means they are Yeah, they have, they have, that's that's what's liberated. That's what's eliminated. Then we get into the multiples, and this is really cool. So from the seventh boomy, we enter this uninterrupted path that goes to the liberated path of the, the eighth, in which the last set, 81, the big of the small, the middling of the small, the small of the small, simultaneously go. Is that 81 or 27? Okay, good. Which is uh, three. Yeah, so the biggest, the three smalls all go at once. Why? Do you remember this is a beautiful analogy about the ship? This is the beautiful analogy about the ship. Right, right. Right, so it's exactly that analogy about the ship, as, as Opa was saying. So it's like before it takes so much effort, tugboats, and I actually see the thing being moved over land before it even gets to the water, 
what it takes to move a boat out of the dry dock across the land and into the water is what you're doing on the first seven boomies. But as we move into the eighth, then it's like the power of our wisdom picks up that ship like it's hitting the ocean and suddenly it can sail. So the um, whereas before we were kind of grinding through these levels of afflictions <laughs> eon by eon, all of a sudden the strength of our wisdom is so great that we can blow out the last of the afflictions and then we're in our, you're in our hut. Then you've completely eliminated all of the afflictive obscurations. That's incredible. So as Venable was saying, this is the point where there's real security. Yeah, real security, Venable Sumpton says. Yes. It seems a long way away. <laughs> it is a long way away. But is a Bodhisattva satisfied with this? No, she is not. She is absolutely not. There's another quote that I hope I can get my hands on quickly. I think this impressed me the most, really, in studying this, a way I didn't understand it before. Well, I can't find it. It's Jeffrey's language anyway, so it's a little bit hard. I'd have to explain it. But the what what this what they're saying is the bodhisattva, not for a minute, is eliminating these afflictions, their goal. Their goal from the get-go is to eliminate the cognitive obscurations or the obscurations to omniscience. So even though this is an amazing thing to come out of the first of the eighth bumi with, with the afflictions completely eliminated from your mind, the afflictions and their seeds, never, ever, ever, ever could they arise again. That's just like not enough. But they're so much closer to what their actual goal is that it's quite inspiring. But never along this path once were they going for this. This I find very inspiring. Okay, so from then, from this point, from the lower eighth bumi, there is another uninterrupted path that leads to the liberated path where they begin to eliminate, or they have eliminated the first big obstructions to omniscience. They meditate on that for a while, then the uninterrupted path leads to the liberated path of the ninth bumi, where they eliminate the middling obstructions to omniscience. Then, on the, then the uninterrupted path leads to the liberated path on the lower part of the 10th booby where they eliminate the coarse, small obstructions to omniscience. The uninterrupted path leads to the liberated path of the upper part of the 10th booby where they eliminate the subtle, small obstructions to omniscience. And when that, that eliminates everything that is an obstacle to Buddhahood. Right? So those are the 11 and the 10. I first heard this teaching, I don't know when, sometime in DFF, years and years and years ago. And I, I vividly remember, I think it was Venerable Children, it might have been Prince Ramangak, but I think it was Venerable Children. But what I remember is this whole thing about big of the big, middle of the big, small of the big, big of the middle, middle of the middle, middle of the middle, middle, middle. what, what, who cares? That was really my unfortunate attitude that also planted seeds of obstruction in my own mind <laughs> to understand it in the future but now really delving into understanding what that means in terms of eliminating the afflictions in our minds it's actually quite exciting so that's I guess that question the afflictive obscurations are abandoned on what levels the cognitive obscurations are abandoned on what levels is that part of the question did we already answer that Let's repeat it. So the afflicted of obscurations are abandoned when? Yeah, from the the afflictive the innate afflictive obscurations are abandoned from grounds two to eight. Oh right, the lower part of eight. To the lower part of the eighth. And then the um, upper part of the eighth to the tenth we eliminate the obstacles to omniscience or the obstructions to omniscience or cognitive obscurations or obstructions to the objects of knowledge. Yeah, okay. So, 
having just talked about them, question number seven. What are the two obscurations? How are they different? On what stages of the path are they abandoned? We just talked about that. Describe how they function in your mind. What are acquired and innate afflictions? How are they different? What's the difference between the seed of an affliction and the latency of an affliction? So let's start at the first one. What are the two obscurations? The afflictive obscurations and the cognitive obscurations. Innate and acquired. Right. Okay. Uh, can we define those? What is an afflictive obscuration? Obscurations that are disturbing and emotion, disturbing emotions and attitudes that prevent liberation. They consist of afflictions and their seeds and the karma that causes rebirth and samsara. They consist of the afflictions, their seeds, and the karma that causes rebirth in samsara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even more precise. Here's Geshe Sopa. They are, for instance, consciousnesses conceiving coarse or subtle self of persons together with their seeds, as well as the six afflictive emotions. So that would be attachment, anger, pride, ignorance, deluded doubt, and wrong views. And the secondary afflictive emotions, which I didn't list out, but those are the jealousy, spite, wrath, craving. can't remember them all. can't remember any of them, but a lot of them are about anger. So that's really even more precise. So all of these are the things that, that afflict our minds. Grasping at true existence being the very root of all that. So what are the obstructions to omniscience? These are the latencies of the afflictions, especially the grasping at true existence and the subtle appearance or perception of dualistic phenomena. Say that again or say it through the microphone. <laughs> They are the latencies of the afflictions. They are the latencies of the afflictions. Especially the grasping at true existence. Especially the grasping at true existence. And the subtle appearance or perception. And the subtle appearance or perception of dualistic, of phenomena. dualistic phenomena. What does that mean? You still perceiving things as truly existence. You still say things as truly existent. And you can't see the two truths simultaneously. You cannot see the two truths simultaneously. Which they want to. Why? Why would this be their goal? Benefit beings who only see conventional truths. To benefit beings. To benefit beings. So that if they can if they could see all of this at the same time, then then their capacity to benefit living beings is limitless. Absolutely limitless. So, the onion analogy. Someone want to describe it? The difference between the two, the afflictive obscurations are like the onions and the predispositions or cognitive obscurations are like the smell of the onions. <coughs> much more subtle. So the afflictions are like the onions in a pot, and the latency. What did you call it? The uh, and the predispositions or cognitive obscurations are like the smell. Of the onions. And the cognitive obscurations are like the smell of the onions. Much more subtle, kind of clinging on, even though the afflictive obscuration is gone. So it's like the. Latency. Latency yeah. is actually a word, right? Yeah. It's like it's the it's the latency that sort of impression since it's been there since beginningless time, the impression is still lingering. And that is the very thing that obscures the mind from being able to see the two truths simultaneously. The obstacle to omniscience. Okay, how are they different? They prevent different things. Can you elaborate? The 
The afflictive obscurations prevent liberation and the cognitive obscurations prevent omniscience. Yes. Anything else? I'm making this up so I could be way off, but my guess is something like a seed causes a latency or a, not the other way around in my mind. Does that make any sense? It might make sense, but I don't think that... I mean, this is this, we're still on the um, how these two are different. So, like, one would be a cause and one would be an effect. Hmm. One is a cause and one is an effect. That's an interesting idea. Do you think an affliction is a cause of the effect of the cognitive obscuration? Well, it might be. <laughs> what do you think? Well, what are the causes of the afflictions? Or grasping at true existence, right? So grasping at true existence causes an affliction, and the affliction causes a stain to linger on the mind so that we can't have omniscience, then maybe you're right on it. Find out when we get there, let you know. We might ask somebody before you get there. <laughs> Unless you're there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be. I don't know. Okay, on what stages of the path are they abandoned? We've already talked about this. Yeah, so the second through the, well, actually on the, the first through the eighth, the afflictive obscurations are abandoned, including the acquired afflictions. Um, and the eighth, upper eighth through the tenth, the obscurations to omniscience are abandoned. Describe how they function in your mind. For this, I will pass the microphone to whoever wants to answer this question. First, the afflictive obscurations. How do they? Uh, how do they function in your mind? Sure, but you have to come up here. Let's hear your own answer, and then let's hear the book. Okay. 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 My own answer, my own answer was how they function in your mind is that the afflictive ones, they keep you trapped into cycling existence. So to me, it was functioning. That's how it functioned. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that the other uh, kept you, the cognitive obscurations kept you from uh, knowing, was being omniscient, seeing everything. That's how I thought of it. But I like what Geshe Soka said. He said, since consciousnesses of sentient beings are necessarily mistaken, that objects appear to them to exist inherently, even if they do not conceive those objects to exist inherently. This type of mistake is limited to sentient beings, those who have minds with obscurations yet to be removed. Thus, the term sentient being includes all conscious beings except Buddhas. Only since consciousness of sentient beings are said to be mistaken because bodhisattvas and meditative equipoise on emptiness perceive emptiness directly with their mental consciousness in an unmistaken manner. They are sentient beings because they have obstructions yet to be removed, but their mental consciousness at the time of directly conceived cognizing emptiness is totally unmistaken. Therefore, not all consciousnesses, but all sense consciousnesses of sentient beings are mistaken. Still, except for those directly realizing emptiness, all other consciousnesses, sense and mental, of sentient beings are mistaken. And that there's a conflict in how things appear and how they exist. 
So even when bodhisattvas or hearers in solitary realize which rise from meditative recoils and emptiness, their sense and mental consciousness again come, come under the influence of previously acquired predispositions that make objects appear as if they inherently exist. So what that says to me is it's kind of like I like that it discerns out the sense consciousnesses, makes it clear that when you're having, how is it functioning? You know, they're functioning from when you're not in meditative poison emptiness. From it tells you how you're seeing things. Truly, you're, you're seeing them as as inherently existent when they're not. So that's how I think it functions in your mind. Yeah, that's a cool point. That's a really cool point. I mean, and also kind of sobering to think that in fact what that indicates is that all your sense consciousnesses are mistaken all the way to Buddhahood and it is only through the direct perception of emptiness that you have an unmistaken consciousness so through reasoning you don't believe what you see but still what you see is appearing as truly existence and that's what the whole thing is about as far as the cognitive obscurations right wow that's a very nice Point. Even they yeah, even though they know it's like an illusion, they practice seeing things like an illusion on the basis of their experience of having realized emptiness directly, the appearance is truly existent. Yeah, so that's how it functions. Hmm. Okay, what are acquired and innate? Afflictions and how are they different? And who wants the microphone for this? No, I don't. (laughs) The acquired, we talked about this last week. Yeah, we talked about this last week. Philosophies and wrong views, and we acquire those in this lifetime. Yes. Um, The innate are, we've had them since beginning of this time. Yes. Ignorance. So the acquired afflictions are the ones that um, are. Wrong views, wrong wrong philosophies, and wrong views that come through um, uh, studying those kinds of philosophies and really putting those ideas in our minds, whereas the innate are the ones that we've had since beginning this time that are based on this appearance of true existence that we grasp at as real. And uh, mistakenly, needlessly suffer. Needlessly suffer. And then what was the point, Venerable Tarpa, that we were talking about at lunch? That Can you, can you say it without notes, this idea about the innate afflictions, uh, the acquired afflictions? That point, the question that I had about the view of the personal identity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the acquired afflictions that, are, that we remove at the um, first boomy are the three fetters, the view of the personal identity. Um, what's the second one? Oh yeah, seeing, holding unethical um, uh, modes of conduct as supreme, and then deluded doubt. Okay, so we've listened a few times to what Venerable said about this, and it's taken three lessons to sink in. People, what she was, she came back. She explained it one week, and then she came back at the beginning of the next week, and she explained that you could think then that on the first boomy, like why aren't they in our hut? Because we're just saying there that they're getting rid of the view of the personal identity. You know, they're, they're working that out, the, the jigta. And so that's kind of the definition, basically, of what it takes to reach nirvana. So so why isn't that the case? Because that isn't the case. That doesn't happen until the beginning, the first half of the eighth ground. So then she went back and said, well, from the view of... Um, not the Prasangika view, but other views, this um, view of the personal identity, they're defining that as the substantially self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So you're grasping at that. And that's not what the Prasangika say. But at that point, when you're grasping at that, you have afflictions that are that come about due to that grasping at that view of yourself as a you know, of the self. And so what you're getting rid of on the first boomy is you're getting rid of the afflictions that are related to that grasping of, at the self as a 
SSSE. Self-sufficient, substantial. <laughs> and then later, when you get to the uh, first half of the eighth boom, then you're getting rid of the, I think it's this, I want to say seeds, but it might be latencies. I, I don't have those straight in my mind. Seeds. Yeah. I think seeds. it was the seeds. seeds. Yeah. You're getting rid of the seeds of that. And so now you're kind of moved into, it relates to getting rid of um, the view of inherent existence the way we understand it. It's, not, it's hard for me to say these words. But they kind of sh made a shift there, you know. Because from the first, in the first one, they were they were defining the self, the coarser, yes, the coarser selflessness, the coarser selflessness. Now at the first half of the eighth, you've gotten rid of this subtle view of selflessness, which is that inherently existing self. And so, poof, and phenomena, and phenomena, and phenomena. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It's a very fine point, but. I, I don't know. I'm tickled that we could even kind of tease it out and yeah, try, to say it. try to say it. Okay. Are we done with that? No. No. What's the difference between the seed of an affliction and the latency of an affliction? A seed is what carries the energy of the affliction. The latencies are okay, the Okay, I'll say it. The seed of an affliction carries the energy or the potency of the affliction. And so can blossom under the right conditions, right? Anytime. Okay. Latencies are the subtle traits. They're not states of mind. They obscure the mind by causing the appearance of true existence. So a latency is like a subtle trace that will not manifest, but it still obscures the mind. And the latency causes the appearance or perception of true existence. Is it what you call the order of the onion? Yeah, that's the odor of the onion. The smell still lingers, and so it obscures the mind from uh, being able to directly see um, the two truths simultaneously. Seed is what carries the energy of the affliction or the potential of the affliction. Latencies are the subtle traits. They're not states of mind. They obscure the mind by causing the appearance of true existence. So the latency is not a mind. It's not an it's Yeah, it's not a consciousness. Right? So the seeds... So yeah. So the seeds are like the potential that's sitting there waiting for the right condition to happen right now. The seeds are. The seeds are. Well, are they consciousnesses? Yes, I think that's right. They can develop into consciousnesses. But they're like potencies. Little pus pockets that could at any moment start to run. But the latency can't ever erupt into an affliction. It's gone because the seed is gone. But the little bit of trace, the memory even, if you will, that's an analogy that's not technical, the memory or something is still there. And that's what is obscuring the mind from omniscience. Yeah? Put up a jig me? There's a... Jack from Boise says, um, I understand that, that I understood that the acquired afflictions were not just acquired in this present lifetime, but also due to imprints of wrong philosophies of many lifetimes. Yes, that's right. Jack's question or Jack's comment was, I understand that stood that the um, acquired afflictions were not just wrong philosophies acquired in this life, but this, the traces of that from many, many, many lives. Yes. That's how I understand it, too. I find that kind of discouraging, personally. <laughs> but, 
So there's a long way to go before even the seeds of all those things, all of our wrong thinking, the seeds of that is still sitting there. Excuse me, madam. Okay, is that all of question seven? Does anybody have anything else on that? Okay. Gosh, I got the list of questions. I didn't really notice this. So, number eight. (laughs) What are the 12 sets of qualities that Arya Bodhisattvas have? How does a Bodhisattva use each one to progress to the next round? The answers are on page 21 in the text. That's right. (laughs) No need to retype them. Uh, At least the answer of what are they. I'll just read through them really quickly because we're running out of time. One sees a certain number of Buddhas in different Buddha lands instantly with the divine eye. Two, by way of that one knows how to bless... By way of that one knows how they bless oneself. This needs a little explanation. Venerable Sturgeon said that inspiration is a better word than blessing. That the Tibetan word that's translated here literally means to transform into magnificence. So it's not about getting zapped by some Buddhas and Buddha's lands, but it's a dependently arising situation where our own minds are open to and able to receive the Buddha's instructions so our mind can be ripened or transformed by our own effort. Okay. But still, a hundred influenced by a hundred Buddhas, Buddha lands. Okay, one blesses a moment such that it lasts a hundred eons, i.e. one moment can last a really, really long time. Four, one enters into displaying the mode of taking birth, the category of the past beginning limit and the mode of passing into death, the latter limit within those 100 eons. So in other words, one can see the past and future of a hundred eons with clarity, which would help you see who you have karmic connections with. So you can really foster that and help. Um, Five, one is able to enter and into and rise from different meditative stabilizations in one moment. So a very, very concentrated mind. Six, with one's own body, you go to a hundred worldly realms, it says here. Jeffrey Hopkins says that you go to a hundred Buddha realms. So venerable children actually thought that the Buddha realms was the correct translation. She thought this translation was wrong. Mm-hmm. Where you can give and receive teachings. Yeah, Buddha realms. Number seven, through vibrating those hundred worlds, one causes trainees to aspire to hear and practice the doctrine. So you vibrate those worlds. I don't know what that means, but um, it inspires people to want to practice. Eight, having illuminated those worlds with one's own light, one teaches others. One ripens a hundred sentient beings in one moment by making emanations. You can emanate a hundred bodies and influence people right there. One opens a hundred different doors of doctrine. So that means that simultaneously you can give teachings that accord with the capacity of all the students that are listening. One emanates a hundred different bodies on this first bumi, and then one is able to surround your own body with a hundred bodhisattvas, so you attract lower level bodhisattvas. And these increase exponentially on the ten grounds. So this first ground you have a hundred set of these. The second ground you have a thousand. One can see a thousand Buddhas in different Buddha lands instantly. On the third ground you can see a hundred thousand on the fourth ground, you can see 110 million. On the fifth ground, you can see 1,010 million, which has one, two, three, which has 10 zeros. After that, I stopped counting zeros. But you know you can see. So you can see. Them like now or in Yeah, the like with the divine eye, with the divine eye, which is, which is the, the, the special power that makes you able to see beyond obstructions, you can see a hundred ten million or a thousand ten million Buddhas in different lands instantly. I mean, just think about that. (laughs) What the heck would that be? (laughs) 
it's yeah. interesting to kind of think about this. You know, yeah. what would that be? What yeah. would that mind possibly be like? At the sixth ground, you see 110 million. Seventh ground, 110 trillion. Eighth ground, the number equal to the particles of a billion worlds. Ninth ground, a number equal to the particles of 10 million billion worlds. Tenth ground, a number equal to the particles of an inexpressible number of Buddha lands. Like, did your mind just go? <laughs> <laughs> but what does it help you to see that? That's the next question. How do they use these? Okay. How do they use these? What's the point? The benefit. The the benefit. Like how? Yes. Teaching. You receive teaching from them. You receive teachings, yes. Jigme? Um, what I found was that with each Bumi, uh, the force of their non-conceptual cognition of whiteness during total absorption and seeing discordant appearances during periods of subsequent realization to be like illusions progressively enhances in turn each of their ten far-reaching attitudes of giving, ethical self-discipline, patience, joyful preservation, mental stability, and discrimination, awareness, skill and means, aspiration, prayer, strengthening, and deep awareness. So, so what you're saying is that the what you're saying is that this helps them do the um, the ten far-reaching practices, right? <laughs> right? But how did you say at the beginning? There was something about the, the discordance between what they see in meditation and what they see, what, what with appears? Each, uh, with each uh, level of the mind, the force of their non-conceptual cognition of voidness. Yeah, so the force of their wisdom. Wisdom. During total absorption. During their meditative equipoise. Yes. And seeing discordant appearances during periods of subsequent realization. Okay, so, so the contrast between seeing emptiness so vividly when they're meditative equipoise and they come out and they have the discordant view that there's all these appearances that yes. seem to be, appear true existent, yeah. And, and to see them, the discordant, uh, to be like illusions. Oh, to see those things that they appear yes. as illusion-like, yes. okay. Progressively enhances, uh-huh. in turn, uh-huh. each of their ten far-reaching attitudes. Okay, so that enhances their development of the ten far-reaching attitudes by which they are creating merit, which helps them to deepen their wisdom, which helps them to move along the path. Yes. So the discordance between what they experience in that day, that report, and in subsequent attainment becomes so... No, it's, no, it's no. that they it's see the discordance as illusion-like, yeah. supports... Their, to me, it sounds like supports their time in meditation uh, on emptiness, and they strengthen each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their medit- So, so basically, they're. Well, it's two practices of wisdom, really. Yes. They're, they're. Although I think it, I guess it's not. I guess it's really method. But anyway, they're, they're perceiving, um, seeing appearances as illusion-like. Yes. And their meditative equipoise on emptiness, where they see the true nature of reality. Those two yes. things support each other, yeah. right? Which makes sense when you think about it. If you come out of meditative equipoise and you see things as truly existent, and you don't counter that, then you would lose your your understanding of everything. Right. Whereas if you can keep the illusion like going, yeah then that's going to strengthen Yeah, so what she's saying is that it makes sense because if you were, um, if you came out of meditative equipoise and didn't counter the appearance of true existence, that you would actually lose some ground maybe or something. But that by trying to maintain that awareness of things being illusion-like, these appearances, that it helps reinforce uh, what you've seen directly in meditative equipoise. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that still doesn't quite get at what in the world difference does it make if you go to a hundred Buddha lands, a thousand Buddha lands, a million Buddha lands. Yeah, how do they use them? I don't think we need to go one by one. But generally generally, how do they use them? You can inspire other people. You can teach other people. You can receive teachings from Buddhas. 
You're accumulating merit like crazy. And just imagine, this is what kind of boggled my mind. I don't, I don't know the right answer. But what was boggling my mind when I was thinking about this is, let's say you emanate 100 trillion bodies to benefit sentient beings. You emanate 100 trillion bodies in a single moment to benefit 100 trillion individual sentient beings. The merit that comes from right then from benefiting that hundred trillion is part of what you need in order to go to the next level. It's like mind-boggling. And the thing to bring it back home is that every time we're doing water bowls in the morning, every time that we're offering our food, every time that we remember to do something kind with a good motivation, not so somebody would like me, all of that all of our, to my mind, kind of, at least my practice, kind of feeble, weak, merit-making activities lead to being able to emanate a hundred trillion bodies to benefit sentient beings directly in that very moment in life in their minds. So to think of like the long, long thread from where this water bowl offering this morning can lead someday is a cause. It is a cause. It's done with a sincere motivation. Yep, done with a sincere motivation, with as clear a mind as possible, even with a... Yeah, all of it. All of it. It's very inspiring. Yes, Venerable Tarpa. I think that a couple of these things, like number five, where you have all these hundred different meditative stabilizations in one moment, Yeah. to me, that would be, in order for benefiting others, the way that would help us to have a very flexible mind. Yeah. Would be quite nice. So then I was saying a hundred, a hundred, entering, being able to enter a hundred or a trillion meditative yeah. concentrations in a single moment would give you a very, very flexible mind. And, and number three, where it says, you know, uh, one inspires a moment that lasts so many eons, uh-huh. that to me makes it seem like it would be your own inspiration for like for, you have joyous effort, and if you have joyous effort, you need that for all the different parts of the path, so you're going to like, you're never going to give up wanting to benefit something no matter what you run into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing about a moment lasting an eon is all about joyous effort and the absolute joy you get from doing what you're doing, and you'll never give up. May we acquire that mind <laughs> quickly. Yes. One sure. One more question from the John. John. Hi, John. If uh, the path of seeing only eliminates the grasping at the SSSE person and not the grasping at inherent existence then doesn't that imply that you're directly perceiving emptiness without having realized the lack of inherent existence? No, that was Venerable Tarpa's whole point that she was talking about here. So it's not that you um, eliminate the grasping at the self-sufficient, substantially existent person there. It's that you eliminate the afflictions that are based on that grasping at the self-sufficient, substantially existent person that you don't actually eliminate that coarse level of grasping or the more subtle grasping at true existence until until the eighth gumi when you've eliminated all the afflictions. Yeah? Yeah. Okie dokie. That was fun. Thank you. So, really, may we, may we um, expand our minds and at the very least be inspired by this plus potential. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Venerable Tarpa asked me to remind people to look at the next question because the next question is about personal experience. And she is the person who's leading the review next week. So she's going to want to know what is our personal experience of these 12 things. So actually, that's her homework. It's not just let's be inspired about it. It's let's really think about these 12 qualities and the infinite exponentially growing potential that comes after all of our meditations on emptiness and so forth. Um, and think about how we think about them. What inspires us? What's the actual question? I don't have yeah, it here. What are the 12 sets of qualities that Arya Bodhisattva have? 
how does the Bodhisattva use each one to progress? Yeah, the next question. Number nine. Do you believe it's possible? Why or why not? And if you have doubt, how do you work with it? Okay, do you believe these 12 questions, these 12 qualities are possible? Why or why not? And if you have doubt, how do you work with that? Those are juicy questions. So we'll do that next week with Bible Chapter. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzing Gyatso Chenrezi, may you stay until samsara ends. Peerless Supreme Spiritual Leader, Omniscient King of the Shakyas, Motherly Tara, Supreme Bestower of Longevity and Wisdom, Vast Ocean Assembly of Sources of Refuge, grant propitiousness here and now for a nectar of benefit and bliss to flow. With a clear mind of extensive learning gained from following the wondrous traditions of Tripton, the able one's teachings, you bring clarity to masses of disciples with the light of children, the lamp of the Dharma. May your lotus feet remain unfaltering for a very long time. Through your dharmic deeds of hearing, thinking, meditating, and so on, place those who seek the liberated path in harmony through immaculate discipline. Please lead all beings to liberation, with undeclining excellent qualities of scripture and insight, and establish them in a glory of eternal bliss. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising, and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially Astravasti Abbey in the West, flourish.